Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, let me welcome you back. We are all appalled and dismayed by last week's deadly attack in Washington, D.C. While we remain focused on helping to set the policy agenda for the incoming Biden administration, I also encourage you to read Israel Policy Forum's statement on the storming of the Capitol and listen to last week's Israel Policy Pod, which examined Israeli reactions to the violence. And of course, our thoughts and prayers are with the injured and with the families of those who were killed in the onslaught. In these difficult times, Israel Policy Forum remains as committed as ever to our mission and our vision. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. To all of our supporters on today's call, thank you. For those who have not yet done so, I encourage you to make a contribution in support of Israel Policy Forum's work. In this transitional moment, our regular Tuesday video briefings continue to be a source of credible, nuanced analysis, not just for today's listeners and supporters, but also for policymakers in Washington and for community leaders across the political, denominational, and generational spectrums. Individuals who downloaded these, these briefings more than 30,000 times last year. When you make a gift, you'll help support not just these Tuesday webinars, but also the weekly Coplo column, Israel Policy Pod, community programming, policy briefings for the Biden administration and the 117th Congress, and development of the next generation of leaders and policymakers. So please, Visit israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving and make your gift today. Thank you. Now, on to today's program. Last month, the Center for New American Security launched a policy report entitled A New U.S. Strategy for the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. This study promises to be an instrumental resource in helping to guide and evaluate the next administration's policy on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The report was informed in part by deliberations of a task force on which I was privileged to serve alongside many esteemed experts on Israeli-Palestinian issues. Today, we are indeed fortunate to be joined by the study's three authors. Elon Goldenberg is director and senior fellow at the Center for New American Security's Middle East Security Program. He also serves as a policy advisor for Israel Policy Forum. Tamara Kaufman-Wittes, a good friend of this organization, is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center for Middle East Policy. Finally, Michael Koplow serves as policy director here at Israel Policy Forum. So with that, Ilan, Tamara, and Michael, thank you so much all for joining us. Uh, I'm gonna start with you, Tammy. Broadly speaking, what are the objective, objectives you hope to accomplish through this report's recommendations? Um, Susie, thank you so much, and, and thanks to Israel Policy Forum for hosting this conversation. We're really glad to have a chance to, to talk about uh, the report and its ideas with you. Um, look, I think fundamentally what we're trying to do here is acknowledge um, that something that 
I think U.S. policy has had trouble acknowledging in the last few years, which is the exhaustion of the Oslo process and the end of that era. Um, U.S. policy is essentially a vacuum right now. The Trump administration's policy was destructive of the prospects for conflict resolution, but it's not as though policy was working well before then. Um, the conflict itself is in a very dangerous place. And so uh, we start from the view that it's simply unacceptable to try and freeze things or just manage this conflict, that the United States needs to take active steps and can take active steps to improve the situation for Israelis and Palestinians today and to lay the groundwork for lasting conflict resolution. Um, and so we wanted to really sketch out in detail what it would take to do that, what U.S. policy should look like. Thanks for that, Tammy, to kick us off. Elon, a key element of the report is ensuring that the United States does not seek to monopolize its mediation role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Based on your experience working on Secretary Kerry's team, why do you think this principle is important in guiding future attempts at resolving the conflict? Sure. And thanks, Susie, first of all, um, for doing this. And so great to be with our friends at Israel Policy Forum and colleagues. Um, and um, yeah, um, look, I think for 25 years, really, I mean, even longer, frankly, um, but certainly since the beginning of Oslo, uh, the American approach, whenever we get excited about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and want to focus on it, is to sort of walk in, elbow everybody else out of the room, not really listen to any of the par other partners, and just do it all ourselves. Um, and I'll tell you, that hasn't really worked for 25 years now. Like we've consistently failed again and again and again. That doesn't mean the U.S. doesn't have a critical role to play. I mean, we do, given our global position, given the leverage we have with all the parties, whether it's, you know, the Israelis, uh, countries in the Arab world or the Palestinians. But I think we've kind of demonstrated that we can't do it ourselves. So it's not that we're not calling for an active American role, but we're calling for a more inclusive role um, that really tries to coordinate our policies with you know, first of all, with key Arab states such as Jordan or Egypt or the Gulf, uh, with the Europeans, with the UN, um, especially with the, the special envoy, uh, the special representative's office, um, all these different players, the Norwegians, who all play an important role on the ground and do different things. And if we actually had an approach that actually sort of had us all rowing in the same direction together and re self-reinforcing, we think we could get more done. Um, and I'll just give you an example of this. Um, Gaza which is where we make some recommendations and also goes back to a, a report we also wrote a couple of years ago about Gaza together, CNAS um, and Brookings and some of the folks here. Um, and, you know, what we talk about there is the fact that there's a lot of things that need to be done on the ground in Gaza, including somebody who's engaging with Hamas in some form of negotiation in terms of getting to some kind of a unity agreement or at least a long-term ceasefire with Israel. Like the U.S. shouldn't be doing any of that. We're not on the ground in Gaza. We're not the ones who are most able to deliver uh, assistance. And so the idea for something like that is, you know, the U.S. working together with Egypt and the U.N. as sort of three leaders and then bringing everybody else on board, because we do have certain things we bring to the table, like our ability to coordinate everybody or our ability to like push the Israelis on certain things and work with them in ways others can't. So um, that's kind of what we're thinking with this report, taking that overall thinking and applying it to the conflict overall. 
Tamara, as a follow-up, you recommend stronger U.S. engagement with other regional actors, particularly Jordan, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Could you describe what you envision and how this comports with the wave of normalization agreements between Israel and other Arab states? Sure. So, look, I, I think we have to start by acknowledging that the normalization agreements between Israel and a number of Arab states are a historic milestone, that they um, are a game changer for Israel's place in the region, and they are absolutely a good thing for American interests, as well as for Israeli security and regional cooperation. Um, the question of whether they have a broader positive impact on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and on prospects for resolving that conflict, I think is a little more complicated. And I do see some potential over the longer term, particularly as uh, Israelis and Arabs elsewhere in the region get to know one another better um, at the cultural level, at the societal level, that you can start to change perceptions. But the core of the conflict remains the territorial conflict between two peoples, Israelis and Palestinians, who each want self-determination and sovereignty, dignity and security. Um, and you really just can't avoid that. You can't go around it. You can't override it. Uh, so states like Jordan and Egypt are Arab states that have their own peace treaties with Israel and have been essential, central supporters of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. I think the Jordanians are probably the most stalwart uh, regional contributor to Israeli-Palestinian conflict resolution. They have been there to help the U.S. resolve crises between the parties, to keep channels of communication open, even when negotiations have broken down. And the Trump administration, I'm sorry to say, really neglected the U.S. relationship with Jordan overall and uh, kept Jordan out of its peace policy. So that is one specific relationship that we're spotlighting in the report uh, as something that the new administration needs to give attention to. Michael, one area the report focused on was rebuilding U.S.-Palestinian relations, which suffered under the Trump administration. You outlined reforming the system of prisoner payments, something critics in Israel and the United States referred to as pay for slay, as an important measure in this process. What steps, if any, has the Palestinian leadership undertaken on this front since President-elect Biden's victory in November, and what remains to be done? Thanks, Susie. Um, so yes, you note that one of the things we are calling for is for the Palestinian Authority to reform the prisoner payment system. And I think that um, when you look at the report overall, the report reflects the fact that there is an imbalance of power here between the two sides. Um, Israel is certainly the more powerful party and um, compounded by the fact that over the past four years, Trump administration policy was very much weighted not only toward the Israeli side, but, but I think in, in many ways against the Palestinian side. And so um, a lot of what we're calling for is, is to try to bring, bring things back into balance, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that the Palestinians themselves don't have to do. And, and this is one of the big ones. And this is one that I think has to be addressed early on. You know, we've seen the prisoner payments issue crop up, obviously in Israel, where uh, the Knesset um, deducts the amount that the uh, PA is paying prisoners 
from the tax revenues it transfers to the PA that it collects on its behalf. But we've also seen it here. We saw the Taylor Force Act passed, which really was uh, a response to prisoner payments. Um, it isn't just Taylor Force. Uh, the Obama administration ended direct budgetary support to the Palestinian Authority in 2014 um, in concern over a number of things, but prisoner payments was one of them. So this is definitely something that the Palestinians, uh, I think, for a while, uh, weren't taking as seriously as they should. And there are now signs that they are taking this more seriously. Um, it has been reported that uh, in preparation for the Biden administration taking office, that the Palestinian Authority is going to advance new legislation that will reform the prisoner payment system and turn it into a social welfare system where the payments are not based on uh, how much time you spend in prison, which is a function of, of how severe the crime is that you committed, uh, but it will, be, it will be based on the need of the families. Um, much like any other social welfare system would do. And uh, indications so far are that the system they set up will be across Palestinian society as opposed to a special infrastructure that will only apply to, uh, to prisoners and their families. Um, that legislation that the Palestinians have been talking about advancing um, has not passed yet. Um, and so, you know, there's obviously work to be done, but I take it as a positive sign that the Palestinians and Palestinian officials are talking about this, not only behind the scenes in, in private conversations, but they're talking about it publicly. They're, uh, they're floating stories to the press. This is obviously something that they want to have out there as a signal that they understand that this policy has to change. And so um, it's going to be, I think it's going to be difficult. Anybody who expects this to change right away is going to be disappointed. It's a big issue in Palestinian society and it's going to require not only far-reaching changes, but I think real conversations to prepare Palestinians for what comes. Um, but I am cautiously optimistic, given the momentum so far, that it is something that will eventually get done. Michael, what other Palestinian governance reforms do you see as being necessary? And what should the United States do to incentivize these reforms? I think we're all aware that the PA... Um, is a, is a necessary organization and it performs many important functions, but I don't think anybody would uh, describe it as, uh, as democratic or transparent. Um, and I think it's important for the Palestinian Authority to undertake reforms in its own governance. Um, obviously, corruption in the PA has been an issue for, for a while. Um, uh, it was certainly improved under Salam Fayyad, but I think that uh, you know, the PA needs to get back to where it was in that regard. Um, on issues of corruption, on issues of transparency. But the biggest issue I think facing the Palestinian Authority is that it has a serious crisis of legitimacy given the absence of elections. Uh, president Abbas was elected as president in 2005. Uh, the Palestinian Legislative Council last had elections in 2006. Um, now, this is another issue that they are currently talking about. Um, and it's been reported in the last couple of days that uh, there is a plan to have Palestinian elections that will uh, that will go in three phases, uh, first starting with the Palestinian Legislative Council, then after that moving to presidential elections, and then finally moving to elections for the PLO. Um, we've seen plans like this before to have elections. Um, they seem to uh, be more thought out and more advanced now than they have been in the past, but um, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, 
But again, the fact that they are talking about it, um, I think is, is, is a critical sign. And um, not only have they been talking about it amongst themselves, but they supposedly uh, have an agreement with Hamas as well, which you know, leads to the question of reconciliation, which is something that Palestinians have to do as well, particularly if we're ever going to get to a two-state outcome, uh, you can't have a Palestinian authority that only speaks for Palestinians who live in the West Bank and that only governs Palestinians who live in the West Bank. There simply has to be reconciliation um, on terms that are acceptable um, to, to the Palestinians, to Israel, to the US international community. There has to be some sort of consensus, I think, um, but those are also things that really need to happen aside from prisoner payments that are important for the Palestinians to, to get through. Thank you. Um, Ilan, previous attempts at resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have been signature diplomatic initiatives, often handled directly by the president or the secretary of state. You were very much involved in the last effort. How has this impacted the effectiveness of past negotiations and what does your report have to say about this? Sure. Um, and yeah, and actually, I want to, before I, Susie, I want to answer your question. I want to add just one point that on everything that Michael just went through with the prisoner payments uh, and, um, you know, and Palestinian society, which is in governance, which is only to say that, look, what we've been hearing from the Trump administration for four years yet is we're injecting reality into this process. And that's what's going to get the Palestinians to move on issues we care about. Well, the Palestinians didn't move for four years on the prisoner issue, despite the Trump administration beating them over the head again and again and again. Um, and now you don't even have Joe Biden elected. And they and look, we're far, far away from like like getting to an, a solution on the prisoner issue. It's a very complicated question. I mean, it's really tough in their politics, as Michael explained. But there's been more progress in the last two months since Joe Biden was elected, just in anticipation of him being president than there was in four years under Donald Trump on this issue. So I just question the assumption that the only way to deal with the Palestinians is to supposedly get them to accept the reality. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, signature, now to actually answer your question, um, but I just felt like I had to get that off my chest. Fine. Um, <laughs> um, in terms of sort of, um, look, um, we, the U.S. doesn't have the capacity to, to make the Israeli-Palestinian issue a major signature initiative right now with the president and the secretary of state. We have a global pandemic. We have, you know, um, environmental crises, uh, increased uh, diplomatic competition or even, you know, great power competition with China. We have all these other things that are happening and frankly are bigger priorities. Even in the Middle East, like the challenges posed by Iran right now are sort of higher on the list of US priorities in Israel-Palestine. So there really isn't the bandwidth to sort of pursue a major initiative, but it also doesn't make sense right now to pursue a major initiative because nobody thinks we're at the point where we're about to get to a deal. And the problem is when you pursue a major initiative on top of sucking away all this time that can be devoted to other things, because one of what I found from serving in government is one of the single biggest opportunity costs and sort of values of currency is senior leadership time. These very important, very busy people only have so much time and energy to focus on things. So, so when they're focusing on this, they're not focusing on something else. Um, but it also creates an environment where if the secretary of state is super engaged, it's really hard for anybody else to get anything done with the parties because you know the parties just wait for the secretary of state to show up so they can talk to him or her. Um, and so... Uh, I, I think from that perspective, there's also real value. Instead of trying to do those big things that require the secretary, it's just like good, old-fashioned, hard work, uh, you know, with competent government officials and people who know these issues working it 
you know, through uh, the normal U.S. government bureaucracy and system. Um, and th there's a lot of recommendations in the entire in the report that are very much based on working with that. You know, the Secretary of State doesn't need to be worried about the details of prisoner payments systems. Like, that's not what the American Secretary of State needs to be worried about. But, but you know, but, Amer but effective American diplomats do. Um, and that's kind of where we can be. And the other thing I'll say that we, we talk about in the report on this is that there's been this tradition, um, especially in Democratic administrations, actually, really since 1992, of this is just handled by two people at the State Department and a couple of people in the White House, and that's it, um, and nobody else. It's not a very healthy interagency process where you bring a bunch of different people to the table with different ideas and also the different agencies. And so we are recommending a healthier process you want USAID at the table talking about assistance. You know, you want the Department of Defense at the table talking about security cooperation. You want different voices in a normal process because I think it leads to better policy um, and more discipline in how you work this. And so those are some of the things we're recommending, um, which I think are frankly easier to do. And it's not, you know, as I think, you know, the famous quote about the Secretary of State being the action officer for the peace process. Elon, I just want to ask you a follow-up about the last round of negotiations in 2014, which obviously did not result in a successful outcome. In retrospect, do you feel that having this something that was led by the Secretary of State, as I recall, he gave it a nine-month time frame to final resolution of the core issues. In retrospect, does that feel like it was not a recipe for success? And is that something that has informed your uh, report? Well, I mean, it's tough. I mean, look, Secretary Kerry put a huge amount of effort and energy into that process. And I very much like appreciated working for him. And, and frankly, he worked harder than all the staff and he really believed in these issues. So I deeply respected his you know effort to do that then, which is why I like hopped on board and supported it and, and worked on it because I wanted to do that. Um, you know, whenever you're going for, you know, a final deal between Israelis and Palestinians, you're always working against the odds. Um, but the situation now is different than it was in the situation then. Um, so I think part of what we're arguing for is, um, you know, now we're in a place where that is not really viable or possible. Then, look, then there were like fair debates between different people who felt that we should or should not do this. I was excited about doing it. Um, so it was, you know, and others were, and, and, you know, and we gave it our best shot. Um, but it's just kind of not where I think we are today. Okay. Um, Michael, in a recent interview published in the New York times, ambassador David Friedman claimed that the Trump administration had quote unquote, injected a dose of realism into the Israeli Palestinian arena. How do you respond to this assessment? as well as the implication that other approaches to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, including the various steps that you and your co-authors recommend, are unrealistic? I think that um, the Trump administration's approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been many things. I'm not sure I would put uh, realistic uh, as, the, as the adjective at the top of the list. Um, and that is not to take away from the administration's legitimate accomplishments, and there are legitimate accomplishments from this administration. Um, you know, uh, Tammy, Tammy noted the Abraham Accords. That is a legitimate accomplishment. Um, and, you know, anytime Israel is uh, better integrated into the region, from my perspective, that's a good thing. And I don't, I don't take that away from the Trump administration at all. Um, but the fact is that on the Israeli-Palestinian sphere, 
if the aim was to try to get the two parties to resolve their conflicts or to even come closer to resolving their conflicts, um, the Trump administration failed in a, in a relatively high profile way, largely because the things it was advancing were not realistic. Um, if the intention is to simply batter the Palestinians um, you know, until, they, until they cry uncle, which as Elon noted, um, did not work in many areas, um, then you know, this may have been a realistic strategy. Um, but if the intention is to get the two sides to negotiate, um, you simply can't put things on the table such as uh, elements that were in the Trump plan that are so far from what one side can possibly accept that they won't even engage with it. And things like unilateral annexation of 30% of the West Bank up front before any negotiation happens. Um, things like stating that there's going to be a Palestinian capital in Jerusalem, but then designating Jerusalem uh, or Al-Quds uh, as the Palestinian capital in three disconnected areas, two of which are Jerusalem, but beyond the security barrier, and one of which is not even part of municipal Jerusalem, is not in any way realistic. Um, so I understand why there were people who were excited about the Trump plan. I particularly understand why Israelis across the Israeli spectrum embraced it. To call it realistic and uh, the basis for any negotiations going forward or the basis for any plan to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict going forward, um, I, I think stretches credulity. Tamara, how does the attitude expressed in the Friedman interview, as well as the Trump administration's record more generally, inform your recommendations as they relate to previous U.S.-backed final status issues, such as borders, security, refugees, and Jerusalem? Um, Susie, thanks. Look, I, I agree with Michael that uh, a lot of what was expressed in the Trump administration's proposals was wishful thinking. Uh, and the wishful thinking of the right wing of the Israeli political spectrum. It wasn't anything that reflected the American government's national security interests and political interests in seeing a lasting resolution of this conflict. And to me, that was most clear in some of the um, steps that were taken, number one, to simply uh, cut off channels of engagement with the Palestinians um, and the way in which Trump proposals fundamentally undermined core principles of the broader Arab-Israeli peace process, like UN Security Council Resolution 242. Um, these core principles uh, are written into the Egypt-Israel peace treaty. They're written into the Jordan-Israel peace treaty. Um, and once you undermine those in the Palestinian arena because you think it serves some short-term interest there because you like throwing out the rule book, um, you are endangering Israel's broader relationships, its broader attempt to ensure its security in its region. You're endangering decades worth of accomplishments in American policy. Um, that to me was not just wishful thinking, but it was reckless uh, and really inexcusable. And so what is one of the things that's very necessary for the new administration to do, and we outline this in detail in the report, is to articulate again 
those core principles that undergird uh, the American role in Arab-Israeli peacemaking and that undergird Arab-Israeli peace. Um, and that includes, you know, no resort to unilateralism, that the only lasting solution, the only acceptable solution to the United States is a negotiated solution. Um, that includes land for peace, that includes uh, nonviolence, rejection of incitement, all of these things that the Trump administration simply disregarded or directly undermined need to be reestablished. Now, what does that mean on those core final status issues? Look, it gets to the very fundamental fact that Israel can impose outcomes, but it can't permanently impose those outcomes. The only way it's going to have reliable outcomes is to have negotiated outcomes. Uh, and so I think that applies to Jerusalem. I think it applies to borders. I think it applies to Haram al-Sharif in particular. Um, and to the extent that the Trump administration tried to simply uh, endorse uh, Israeli imposition of outcomes, I think it just further entrenches the conflict. One of the things we did, Susie, that I really want to make sure um, to share with everyone who's listening is we took head on the question of whether a two-state outcome is still viable and whether it should be the objective of American policy. Uh, we spent a lot of time in our task force, not only examining the viability of that outcome, but also looking at the various alternatives that are put forward. And we came to the clear conclusion after a lot of discussion that those other outcomes, confederation, federalism, one binational state with equal rights, none of them are any more realistic and none of them are any more likely and in fact less likely to lead to a lasting resolution of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and so our conclusion after that review was that the two-state outcome needs to remain the objective of American policy. We need to prepare for alternatives. We need to prepare for the parties to give up. But we know what the objective for the United States should be. We know what we think will be most likely to create a lasting peace. You said something that I think bears repeating, as we know in the Torah, things that are really meaningful are often said more than once. So I just want to remind our audience, you said that Israel can impose outcomes, but cannot impose permanent outcomes uh, that can only be achieved through negotiation. So I just think that was very meaningful and I wanted to highlight it. Uh, reminder to our audience, that we have a number of good questions in the queue and I'm going to get to them momentarily. But if you do want to ask, if you do want to ask a question, please type one in the Q&A and I'll get to as many as I can um, in the remaining half hour. I have one more for Elon and then I'll get to audience questions. Elon, observers often note that any resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether a two-state outcome, which your report supports, as does Israel Policy Forum, or some other proposal, is a long way from being implemented. So what steps do you recommend in the near term to improve the lives of Palestinians and Israelis? Sure. Well, there's a lot of things that we sort of put into the report because the way we structured the report was kind of to look at you know, near term steps that can be taken to both fix the relationship with the Palestinians uh, and also improve the situation on the ground. Long term steps are more challenging. And then, of course, a, a lot of focus as well on just how the U.S. organizes and engages. And so in the near term steps that 
And I would see near and also medium term steps that I think are very meaningful. Um, you know, I'd put a few. Um, one is relooking Area C, um, allowing for more Palestinian construction in Area C and more permits in Area C. Um, and this is also partially based on a couple of different IPF has made these recommendations, and so has CIS and previous reports. Um, one study that found, I think this was one of either IPF or CIS, that two to three percent of Area C, if you were to switch it over to Area A or B and allow the Palestinians to have control of that, you would essentially get rid of 200,000 uh, or, or a population, 200,000 people who are under the threat of home demolition would no longer have their homes under threat of demolition. Um, another one we sort of get into is the question of legal status of Palestinians in terms of having like due process, um, right? I mean, there are two systems of law inside the Palestinian territories, one for Israelis and even, you know, if an American were to go visit, they would be under the system of law. And if they were to get to do something and get arrested, they would go through what is the Israeli judicial system, which has due process, um, like we have in the United States in some form or another. And then there's the military system, military courts for Palestinians, which involves almost a 100% conviction rate for the same exact types of actions. And so trying to have some kind of an equal system you know, I mean, I think this is something that frankly resonates at home um, in terms of just as we think about this, you know, it's been 50 years under the laws of occupation, like you can have these two separate systems, um, you know, but, you know, I think the argument is that after a while, if you're people, you know, the laws of occupation don't really envision a 50 year occupation, you got to make adjustments here. Um, a couple of other ideas. One, um, I think a major surge on economic and humanitarian support inside Gaza. Um, especially focused on electricity, water, and freedom of movement, allowing like more work permits, for example, for Palestinians in Gaza, which, by the way, is supported by you know the IDF and by Israelis who live in the communities closest to Gaza, who have relationships with the people in Gaza and would like to see those people be able to work, for example, on their farms nearby, um, would also have a big infusion and make a big difference. Um, I also think economic investment in the West Bank, um, you know, and then also, I mean, it's not just for Palestinians. Like one of the arguments we make is for a longer term political agreement between Fatah and Hamas needs to also include a long term ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, which would, I mean, put a, end the rocket fire or dramatically reduce the threat that Israelis face, especially in the South, on a daily basis. Um, and so I think there's things for, for everyone here. Um, that can be taken. And, and look, none of these things are easy, um, but I think all of them are doable. And importantly, it's not just the biggest concern you sometimes get is just make the Palestinians' lives better economically, and then they'll be okay and be quiet. And frankly, the Trump administration kind of pushed that policy and approach. That's not what the report recommends, all right? I mean, we're recommending some steps in that space, but but a lot of the things we're talking about have a lot more to do with rights and have a lot more to do with quality of life and pride and, and those other things that aren't just, you know, money and economic opportunity, which of course matter to people, but it's not just about that. And people who focus just on that, like miss one of the key components of the conflict. So I'm going to turn to audience questions. We have more questions than I think we have time, but let's try to do lightning round with these questions or not lightning round, but you know what I mean? Um, Jonah Nagy, one of our IPF and T leaders from Boston asks, how would the ideas from your recent report be lobbied to or communicated with officials in the Biden administration?
Uh, well, I, I can I start to anybody. So whoever wants to take it, um, I'll just jump in and, and say, you know, look, we, we have been working on this for a year. We've engaged a lot of folks across the political spectrum, uh, in Washington, as well as, uh, consulted with people in Israel and Palestine and Europe and elsewhere. Um, so some of these ideas uh, have already been socialized with both Democrats and Republicans. Um, but, uh, you know, we're now that the report is out, we're briefing very widely uh, and uh, and very hopeful that uh, when folks get into place in the incoming administration, that they will be open to these ideas. Um, and, you know, of course, I I also don't want to suggest that this stuff is like a bolt from the blue and nobody has ever thought about these ideas before. Um, I think part of what we're doing is not simply assembling a bunch of policy steps, but assembling um, a logic and a framework for a reoriented and restructured American effort, one that recognizes that we can't simply go in pursuit of a final status agreement and ignore the day-to-day -day lived reality for Israelis and Palestinians. Um, and so it's more about how does the United States set up an effort that can be sustainable over the time period that we think it's gonna take to get traction? Um, and what can we do today and every day between now and a final status agreement to improve freedom, to improve security, to improve prosperity for Israelis and Palestinians? Martin Raffel asks, what about an ambitious Marshall Plan for Palestinian economic development and institution building that might also transform the psychological barrier to progress towards two states? I'll, I'll hop in on this because it was tried under the second and under the Kerry, you know, during the Kerry initiative. If folks remember, there was a multi-billion dollar proposal. And then also, you know, the Trump administration proposed an even bigger, you know, plan along these lines. And what we found over time as you start diving into the details of this is all of this, Israel still controls everything that goes into and out of the West Bank. All of this requires Israeli economic enablers, Israel allowing the Palestinians to have 5G technology, Israel allowing Allenby to stay longer, open longer, Israel allowing exports for things like, you know, soda to not like sit in a warehouse waiting for inspection for like 20 or 30 days. Um, and so what we found is that you can't do any of this stuff without a big push on Israel. And there's just not a lot of political support like to get these things done on the Israeli side. And, and it's really a combination of things. A lot of this isn't even, it's not like malicious in many cases. It's just the nature of the fact of, you know, you have no constituency in the Palestinian territories who can put pressure on the political leadership in Israel to actually do these things. So some of it gets hung up in bureaucracy. Some of it is done on purpose for economic reasons. Some of it happens uh, when, you know, the U.S. or like try, tries to launch some kind of a big effort and then like their political reaction in Israel is, okay, anything we're going to give to the Palestinians, we need to hold it for the moment and wait because then we need to give it to them when the Americans ask us for something, which is another one of the negative downsides of like elevating some of these things. So I really believe that like a big grand economic plan um, just can't work until you get these details right. Also, if I can just add on to that, even if even if that was something that that people thought was was a good idea and, and the best thing to advance now, um, 
it would be difficult given restrictions that are currently in U.S. law. Um, you know, it isn't only that the Trump administration unilaterally decided not to spend uh, money on humanitarian assistance that had been appropriated by Congress. Um, there are there are controls uh, in congressional legislation, such as Taylor Force, um, that make spending money in the West Bank and Gaza not 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 an easy, free and clear endeavor. Um, so I think that you know a lot of things would have to happen, um, even if something like a big uh, economic Marshall Plan for the Palestinians were to work. There's been a question, by the way, uh, from uh, a wonderful supporter of IPF. Uh, Marsha Rickless about whether or not this, the report is available. I assume it's on CNAS's website. Is it also on our website? Does anyone know if we have a link to it already? I don't think it's on our website yet, but but we can um, we can put it in the we can put the link in the that chat. And if we can put a link in the chat, that would be great as well. Um, James Cummings, hi Jim. Hope you're well. Asks with the passing of Sheldon Adelson today, what changes do you forecast for the political landscape in Israel for the Palestinians? and the movement, or stalling of the peace process? How might this accelerate or delay Bibi's legal challenges? I don't know who wants to take that on. Somebody. I can, I, I can. Okay, I can Michael. Um, as I'm, sorry, as, as I'm looking for the, uh, as I'm looking for the link here uh, to, to place it. Um, it's already there. The link is already there. Great. Um, so, I'm not, I don't think that, that Sheldon Adelson's death is going to impact things all that much. Um, the, the causes that, uh, that he supported, um, as far as I can tell, are, are supported just as equally uh, by his wife, Miriam, who, um, let's not forget, is the publisher of Israel Hayon um, and was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, by President Trump a couple of years ago. So um, I expect that whatever the Adelson family's priorities are, um, they will continue. Um, as for as for Netanyahu's um, legal troubles, uh, people will note that um, in case two thousand, which is you know one of the three one of the three cases for which Prime Minister Netanyahu is under indictment, and that's the one where uh, he negotiated with Noni Moses, the publisher of Yediot Achronot, to give him more favorable coverage in return for um, essentially uh, putting a paywall around Yisrael Hayom. Which is now given out for free. Um, you know, the that case is, is going. The testimony from Sheldon Adelson was given in 2018. Um, interestingly, that transcript was leaked to the Israeli press, uh, and in that transcript, Adelson said that he was never going to talk to Netanyahu again. Um, I don't know if that's a pledge that he kept, but um, you know, I think that whatever wh- whatever role he had in uh, Netanyahu's legal troubles, it's already baked in, and I don't expect that um, that the causes that he felt important about are, are going to be defunded by his family. Thanks. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Tammy. Top of that real quick, which is to say that I think it's important to recognize that the Netanyahu-Trump interaction over the last several years has been particularly destructive of prospects for, for Israeli-Palestinian conflict resolution and of the American role in the peace process. But we have to realize this isn't all about Bibi Netanyahu. It, this is not one man's policy. Um, and let's remember less than a year ago, there was a majority in the Israeli Knesset that was prepared in principle to support a de jure annexation of West Bank territory. Um, there is a broader loss of faith 
in Israeli society and Palestinian society about the hope for peace, um, about the possibility to achieve a negotiated uh, resolution of the conflict. And that's precisely why the United States needs to dig in and take that problem seriously and work that problem on the ground and with political leaders in Israel and in Palestine. Um, one of the biggest tools we have to do that was just passed by Congress at the end of this year, uh, a new fund that will provide $50 million a year for coexistence programs. And one of our major recommendations in the report is that that needs to be a core element of American policy. This isn't all about high politics, getting people in a smoke-filled room to sign an agreement. This is about rebuilding public support for peace, rebuilding public confidence in the possibility of peace. And so um, we hope to see that money integrated into America's diplomatic strategy on the ground. Uh, as a follow-up to what you're just saying, Tammy, we have a question from Brett Kleiman, what role, which anyone can take, what role can the U.S. Congress play to further along the peace process, or will this have to be a White House effort? I can, I can hop in on this. Um, so, so look, I think I, what Tammy just pointed out um, is a great start, right? The, the, the big peace fund, the Nidaloe peace fund that was just passed um, in Congress. Um, I do think, frankly, you know, one of the things we outlined in the report is that in the last few years, Congress has probably gotten too involved in some of these issues um, in the details, right? Congress should be there to support. Congress should absolutely set parameters. Congress you know, should be asking the administrations for briefings. Congress can be playing multiple roles in terms of diplomacy and going over there and representing. Um, but getting into places where it's conditioning sort of American money on very specific things that have to do with American domestic politics, um, some of the Taylor Force stuff, some of the ATCA stuff, like this is what happens when Congress gets sometimes too engaged um, in a way that's now hampering U.S. foreign policy and the ability to actually be engaged especially because, you know, as we all know, like this issue is one that has, it's not just about U.S. foreign policy. It's very much about American domestic politics. And so that's going to drive certain congressional outcomes. Um, and so this is part of the reason why we hope that we can get to an early focus on, you know, the prisoner payments. If the Palestinians can reform the prisoner payment system the way we would all like to, that's become a huge inhibitor to any congressional relationship with the Palestinians and, you know, U.S. role in the conflict, I think we can use the momentum of that very important step to unwind some of the sort of challenging and negative laws that are out there and also try to find a more positive role for Congress to play in some of these places. Um, so that's what I would also like to see. I mean, I will also say that part of this is, um, look, I mean, I also used to work on the Hill and sometimes you put ideas out there and laws out there that you know the executive is gonna push back on. And so you start with your opening position and the executive pushes back and you end up with something that's kind of healthy. I mean, in some respects, the Trump administration has been out to lunch on some of this stuff where they just don't get in the way, they don't engage on some of these pieces of legislation. And suddenly the initial draft is what becomes the law and then everybody turns around and says, ooh, wait, that was a bad idea. Like they've, you know, the executive branch is supposed to play that healthy, normal role of negotiating with the legislative branch. Um, and it's not happening enough right now. While we're talking about Congress, we have a question from Andrew Marks. What are your thoughts about the potential promise of the recently enacted 
Nita Lowy, Midi's Partnership for Peace Act, and what actions could IPF and others take to support the promise of the act? And maybe someone wants to also just say what the act uh, represents. Yeah, so uh, you know, that's what that's what Tammy was referring to uh, earlier um, with the $50 million annually for five years to support uh, peacebuilding organizations, NGOs, conflict mitigation, people-to-people programs. Um, that is legislation um, that, that IPF has supported. Um, there are very few pieces of legislation that we uh, that we publicly support. Um, that was uh, that was one of them. Um, and 100, percent we think it's we think it's a good uh, for sure it's a good thing. And um, you know this is money that can definitely go to lay the groundwork for an eventual an eventual negotiated solution. Um, you know if there's if there's uh, if there's one thesis sentence um, to describe our report, it's that. Um, we shouldn't allow negotiations to prevent all sorts of other good and necessary work that has to go on that often doesn't because of the focus on negotiations. And I think that uh, something like the Nidalelli Fund is a good example of that where you know you can actually do good work on the ground that doesn't have to be tied to um, or aimed at um, direct talks between the parties. Tammy, I think this next one, I'll start with you. Uh, Gabriel Avner asks, on the question of the United States coming down more on the Israeli side, isn't that an important part of the American role? Israelis don't view any of the other actors, EU, Gulf, UN, Turkey, or others in this space as being fair actors. If the U.S. moves to make it more balanced, does it lose an important impact that it could have to reassure Israelis in taking risky steps? Um, okay, so I appreciate the question because I'm not sure I accept the premise. We are not uh, advocating in this report that the United States sort of look at the positions of the two sides on every issue and draw a line down the middle and walk that line. That is that is not uh, that is not the report's recommendation. I would agree that historically, the reason why the United States has been a valued uh, mediator, not only by the Israeli government, but also by the Arab world, is because of the US-Israel relationship. It's because of that relationship, it's because of America's commitment to Israel's security, uh, that uh, Israel has been able to go into these negotiations with confidence uh, that it can be secure even when it's making territorial compromises. And um, the Arab interlocutors, whether it was Sadat or King Hussein uh, or Yasser Arafat, could go into negotiations knowing that um, the United States can help bring Israel meaningfully into a negotiation. Uh, And that when the U.S. speaks, it can speak authoritatively about Israeli positions. So, uh, you know, balance is not the point here. The point is being trusted, being effective. Um, And ultimately, it's the two parties that have to negotiate where on the spectrum between one position and another, a negotiated agreement will land. Anybody else want to add anything? Okay, let's keep going. Um, I think this is directed to you, Michael. I'm going to take two questions that overlap. Jeff Daub, and I hope I'm saying your name right, Jeff, Since 1994, systemic and systematic incitement has plagued 
PA media and education. What steps, if any, do you see the Biden administration uh, taking in the form of either carrots or sticks to discourage anti-Israel incitement? And in a similar vein, Mindy Stein asks, how can we ever have peace until the educational Palestinian curriculum and textbooks are changed, just like the UAE did starting already five to 15 years ago? Maybe the UAE can have an effect on the Palestinian educational system by helping them change their textbooks. Um, so, uh, hi, Jeff. Um, 100% incitement is, is a problem. Um, and, you know, in the, in the report, we, uh, we talk about the need for there to be an effort to, to combat incitement um, uh, on both sides. You know, in the past, there was a trilateral incitement um, commission of sorts. Um, I'm not sure how well, how well it worked. Um, but but it, I don't think any of us um, any of us downplay downplay the problem, um, and you know partially one of the reasons that this is one of the many reasons why we are we are not uh, recommending that anybody enter into negotiations. Um, you know nobody nobody none of us think that negotiations right now would work, and there are many reasons for that, and I think that. Um, issues of incitement within society are one of them. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that societies are prepared um, at the moment to take the steps necessary, or to even to even uh, accept the other side as necessary. Um, and by the way, this is you know th- this is also the type of thing that can be worked on um, through the types of initiatives that the Needle OE Fund um, will support, and, and that organizations like Alliance for Middle East Peace have been working on. So um, yes, incitement is a problem. It's not going to end overnight. It 100% has to be tackled. Um, we do talk about it in the report. Um, you know, with regard to the UAE, which which, which was the the second question, um, I would certainly hope that not just the UAE, but as other Arab states become more invested in this conflict in different ways as they as they normalize with Israel and and as they are on the ground more and as they see the situation for themselves, um, I hope that they all play as productive roles can be played, and um, if. Part of that is helping the Palestinian Authority um, reform some of its materials. That that would be a that would be a great outcome that I don't think anybody here would would uh, would take issue with. I I would just add to that, Susie, that I think one lesson that uh, should have been driven home very sharply uh, for Americans this week is the critical role that leaders play in either cultivating an environment for uh, reasoned discussion or in inciting people to um, follow their own worst instincts. And uh, and so we can talk about societal initiatives, people to people initiatives, um, but we also have to talk about incitement at the level of political leaders and it has to be part of the diplomatic conversation. Elon? It does need to be, as Michael said, on on both sides, because I know this is traditionally an issue where, you know, like Palestinians, but if you look at where Israeli society has gone in recent years and some of the places where some of their leadership has gone, some of the far right wing parties and what they are saying and doing and the increasing incidence of settler violence, um, you know, in the in the West Bank, um, this really is a problem that's become a problem on both sides now. And so also have Israel also has to look itself in the mirror on some of these issues as well. So John Allen asks, and I don't think it's your boss, Tammy, (laughs) J-O-N, will anyone higher up in the Israeli government listen to lower level U.S. and other bureaucrats, or will they only listen to the Secretary of State? 
BB et al. are unlikely to move on major issues without maximum pressure? What do you guys think of that question? So maybe I'll, I'll hop in on this one because I actually think there's like a few different things happening here. You know, if you're looking at big things like let's talk about negotiating the final status of Jerusalem or the 67 lines, obviously you need the president, the secretary of state and, you know, the prime minister. But a lot of the things we're talking about don't rise to that level. Um, and my experience has been is sometimes when those things become super highly charged and political at the highest levels, less action happens when things can happen quietly below the radar, just move things positively, which is in many ways, the types of things we're, we're talking about in this report. A lot of these things are not massive, sort of high profile, super politically charged initiatives. So, you know, I think a lot of the work can happen at that level. And then you still do need to save the secretary of state and the president. They need, do need to come close the deal on some of these things, right? But what you don't want is them every day, they're negotiating all the details. Um, and, and what you do need is you do need some signaling that, you know, that the president and the secretary of state are supporting and empowering the people who are doing the work on the ground, right? That, you know, if the prime minister can just go around and call the secretary of state directly and, you know, find out that actually, no, what's been happening on the ground is not reflective of the secretary of state's views, well, then you're not going to get anything done. But if the U.S. government is doing things right, and you have a healthy interagency process with regular reporting going up to the secretary and the president and like preparation and strong talking points coming from the very top saying like, this is what we're doing and pushing for um, instead of random tweets, um, like, you know, kind of like how our government used to work, then I think you can get a lot done without needing to have, you know, the president and the secretary of state involved every day. So I think we have time for maybe one more question. Um, and this is sort of a nice wrap-up question. Edward Sondick, would you characterize this plan's approach as a bottom-up approach dealing with meaningful issues to the people rather than broad strokes? I, I would not. Um, it has a lot of bottom-up elements, um, but it is not a bottom-up approach. It, it also, and if you read the report, you'll see this sketched out in great detail. Um, it is also proposing a lot of clear top lines for uh, US policy statements, for diplomatic engagement in the region and internationally, for America's stance in international institutions, um, and for direct engagement with the political leadership of the two sides. So no, this is not bottom up. What it is trying to do is uh, to integrate better the bottom up and the top down, I think one of our core findings that informs a lot of the report is that through most of the Oslo years, there was so much focus on the, on the high politics, the high diplomacy, that the stuff lower down simply got ignored or marginalized. And what we want is a much more integrated strategy. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, but I really want to thank the three of you, Elon, Tamara, Michael, for taking the time to speak with us. Once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. So again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all for joining us today. I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. Sign up to receive the weekly Coplo column in your email inbox and visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. 
Please stay tuned for an announcement regarding our next video briefing, which will take place next Tuesday, January 19th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, everyone stay safe, be well, and thank you for joining us.